Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Future Hacker. I'm your host, Maria Taigi, and today we are talking to Olinga Taid. Olinga is the director of the world's leading think tank on the movement of value measurement, the not-for-profit center for citizenship, enterprise, and governance, which has over 190,000 members. He's expert advisor and council member of the Chinese Ministry of Commerce's China E-Commerce Blockchain Committee, which has oversight of 70% of the global market value at $103 trillion. He was the world's first professor in blockchain at BCU and is editor of the leading peer-reviewed frontiers in blockchain with 516 editors. His latest project is the Institute of Ideology in Code, home of total value. Hi, Olinga, it's so great to have you with us today. How are you doing? Very good, and thank you very much, Marie, for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. It's a true, true honor to have you. And you know what? One of the things that is not on your bio is that, you know, you're this super hardcore, hands-on social worker, right? When he was telling me about all the social work he does, I couldn't avoid asking, Belinga, what happened to you? What happened in your life, right? So please, I'd love if you could share with our listeners the journey that you've been through. Okay, thank you. With you, you're the first person to call me a social worker. That's good. For most people, they think social worker is like an insult. For me, it's an honor. It's an honor. So I guess, you know, I was like uh, many of your uh, audience, your regular private sector guy. I was uh, about uh, 48, had around uh, 9,000 staff, and I had 12 companies and companies on NASDAQ and on London Stock Exchange and so on. And, you know, the usual kind of pointless life, to be frank. And my daughter, whose name is Tigris, she had two breakdowns in 2008. And that changed the course of my life tremendously. That was so that was what, 12 years ago or 13 years ago. And let me start with saying to you that I am the happiest I have ever been since the age of 11. And I'm 61. So I thank her for bringing me to this point of happiness. It wasn't in my life. So she had these breakdowns and she now hears voices 24-7. But I remember thinking at the time, Maria, I thought, wow, I have nine houses, I have seven cars, I have multiple divorces, and I failed to help her to be there. Uh, I have contributed towards her, her crisis. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, I understand the value of money, which is, uh, you know, the dollar is the currency of financial value, but I don't understand the value of non-financial value or the currency of non-financial value. Happiness and kindness and hope and generosity and love. So I sold businesses, most of them, And I went on a journey to try and understand my daughter, understand my own self, understand society better. And I set up in 2011, a few years later, I set up a not-for-profit, which is the center you mentioned, the Center for Citizenship, Enterprise and Governance. And in the intervening period, you know, I had always done tons of mentoring of people uh, before that. 
But in that intervening period, I did become, as you say, I moved far more towards a philanthropic, altruistic life, did emergency fostering. For anyone who understands fostering, that's hardcore fostering. That's where you have no relationship with the person, but you got to keep them alive, you know. And around five, six people a year, I try to help them with mental health issues in particular is my interest. To be honest, you know, it's this thing, the journey that I'm on, it's completely accidental. You know, so I set up a center, a not-for-profit center, which is an academic center, because a couple of universities have given me a fancy professor title for no reason whatsoever, I have to be honest. You know, at that time, I was impact investment advisor for a guy called David Cameron, who was the prime minister of the UK and so on, on something called Big Society, which is his kind of grand idea. I thought they wanted me to uh, help get bankers to understand that there are other values other than money. Because we were post-2008 financial crisis, and bankers were still paying themselves humongous bonuses. You know, there was a guy in particular we were focused on at the time in government, a guy called Bob Diamond, who was CEO of Barclays, and he was an American guy, and, uh, and uh, he wanted to pay himself $18 billion straight after the crisis of the banking world that created the you know, crisis in the world. And they were going, it's not right. But of course, Bob went, you know, well, it's legal. My shareholders love me and they're none of your business. I am paying myself 18 million. And so we thought what we need was a, another currency which people understand as quickly as the dollar. They can understand happiness, goodwill and love so that people like bankers and all of us can track ourselves easier and can transact it. I guess a challenge which they had set me, I remember the conversation, they went, oh, you're a professor now, aren't you? You're clever now, right? I went, yeah, I am so clever as of like the last few days. And they said, look, come up with a way, a one number metric to do all this, represent all of this. And I remember, you know, and I thought to myself, wow, even a, a joke professor like me can, knows enough to know that you can't bring all this to one number, you know? And I went to see many academics, around 16 of them at a time, in the UK, I have to be honest, not abroad. And they all went, yes, have you read my book? And it takes three years to do a PhD on one, something to on one organization to understand their value to society, and two years to peer review it, and then their publication. And But you know, at the time we had 165 million companies in the Europe. We had 35 million in the US. We had 40 million in China. We had about 1 billion organizations in the world with NGOs. And how can you start metricizing the contribution of their impact that they have on society, etc.? You know, using traditional techniques, you know. And there are many ways. There are about 3,000 different metrics out there in this area. And I was focused on data. And indeed, you know, I recently gave a speech to central bankers and I said, what will be the currency of 2030, the United Nations SDGs? What will be the currency of the world by then? And not a single one of them said money. They said money, maybe, but not really the focus. It's either data or it's uh, sentiment or it's ideology. And so we are moving as a society to measure and transact different kinds of values. I was focused, I'm interested in the measurement and the transaction of all values. And you know, nowadays in particular, 
we talk about ideology. And recently, you know, we've all heard of what's happened in Afghanistan. And that is a battle of not money, it's a battle of ideology. There's Americans who've gone in and the British have gone in, the Russians have gone in, Islam is now predominant, the Chinese are now in, you know, and these are all trying to promote their ideology. But they are using nowadays, especially in China, they are using what we call fourth industrial revolution technologies of blockchain, of AI, of 5G, of Internet of Things to actually measure and transact and monitor these values. So to make it clear to people, our understanding of this is different in the different areas of the world. Over in, in the States, in particular, they think data belongs to corporates and the corporates give you services for free like Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp, you know, and they go, shut up. We just want your data to sell you more stuff or to nudge you to a behavior in like vote in a particular way. And they go, you know, this is very transparent. You give us the data, we give you the service for free and we get our money back from selling more stuff to you. In Europe, we have a different view. They go, my data, my way, hence the whole GDPR thing. And But frankly, it's not been a success because we all know that all we do is hit cookie accept buttons 30 times a day and no one reads any terms and conditions whatsoever. And the Chinese, as an example, they believe data belongs to government and that their job is to look after their society and they're not at all focused on individual rights. And so for them to look after 1.4 billion people in China and 72 BRI, one belt, one road countries, they go, we can't do this through individual rights, respect and all that. We will use data to transact our values and to ensure that they are aligned to their values. In China, they have something called a social credit system which, of course, is totally abhorrent to the West. You know, they go, what? You know, you're going to reward people based on how good they are citizens, according to you? You know, no, 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 we have individual rights. And the Chinese go, well, we can't monitor individual rights. So we want to nudge to what we consider to be an ideal society. You know, we'll monitor your behavior. We'll, we'll reward you for good behavior and punish you for bad behavior and give you benefits and etc. So the journey where we are now is I spent 12 years looking at how we measure this stuff. I came up with an idea which happened to take off by luck and coincidence. And now I'm into the transaction of, of love and happiness and hope using things like blockchain. And then now ideology, because I rather, the thing about blockchain is not because I'm hell bent on this. You know, there are many people who are religious about blockchain, you know, they think it's the old bankers should be on nooses and so on. That is not me. But the thing about blockchain is that it can arbitrage any kind of asset, digital asset. That means anything which is of value. And you know, money is of value like Bitcoin, but so is happiness and so is love. And so is kindness. And if you can t digitize that, if you can, if you like, represent it through a token, and then you can arbitrage between money and love and happiness, etc. Olinga, you, you covered so much, so much. And so um, what I'd like to do next is to try to dig a little deeper into 
a bit of, of the things you just it was um, a wonderful background by the way so let's start by this this challenge you were given right so you know you were challenged to find out sort of a way to measure something that is absolutely subjective i understand that everything can be quantifiable but still it's very subjective right and you simply ended up created the gods metric So basically, you, you came up with this way to measure happiness, love, kindness, hope, right? So I have two questions for you. So the first is, is I don't even know if there's an easy way to answer that for like a podcast, but how you were able to, to quantify. I understand you talk to, to all those academics and, and, and they have all those books and things like that. But still, um, if there's a, any way you could make it a little more tangible for people like myself that doesn't really understand it. And then I'd love if you could share how you got this new system you created, like literally blessed by, you know, the Vatican. Okay. So before we go into how we do it, let me tell you that it doesn't matter how you do it. So often we are challenged in court because our metric has become a kind of de facto standard for procurement by governments around the world. Only in that area, I have to be honest, you know, no other area. If you don't win a contract with three billion because of my metric, of our metric, then certainly you're not very happy, are you? you? So we go in court about five times a year and we always defend and we never lose, but we always defend. Yep. The point I always say in court is it's not your honor. It is not that our metric is right. It's that we're consistently wrong. And the word is consistent. It means, despite it being a subjective happiness, right, as you say, the way we do it is completely objective. There is no influence from us, and we use data. We measure sentiment, which is well measured already by people at like Facebook and Google and Amazon measure sentiment all the time. You know, if, if your listeners are unaware of how they do it, you know, when you're on, let's say I'm, I'm sending a message to my mum, I say to her, you know, oh, my knee hurt or my foot. I've just, I, for example, have I've just torn my Achilles tendon last week. So it reads my Gmail or my WhatsApp, looks at the word around Achilles heel. Is it bad, good or, or indifferent? And then it says, what browser is he using? What's his location? Sell him a Achilles heel wrap or something, right? So they already use this with nothing to do with us extremely well. And the Chinese government do the same, but they read all your WeChats exactly the same way. So what we do is instead of enabling that information to help them to either sell you more stuff, we work on actually first to nudge you into a better person. All right. So the, the technology behind it, the way we came up with it, where would I start if it was financial value? In the financial value, there's one number metric called the price-earnings ratio, the P-E ratio. It represents every single stock exchange in the world has a column saying P-E ratio, next to price and capitalization and yield, etc. It is universally accepted. And I went, what we need is a social earnings ratio, a one-number metric, just like the P-E ratio, which together with your social earnings ratio represents the total value of what we're talking about. So it's your, your financial and your non-financial value. At the time, no one was that interested. We automated it. I automated it. The university didn't want to, couldn't afford it. It was 100K. I spent my own money on that. And I didn't think much about it. 
But then I got a chance request, invitation to speak at the Vatican. And I thought it was a joke at first. I thought, what? what is, because I wasn't, you know, Maria, I was not a very nice person before all this, you know. I remember my head of PR came to me once because there was two TV programs about me in the UK many, many years ago. They were such a nasty guy, this guy Alinga is, captain of industry, look what, how he treats people. I remember I fired 80 CNN journalists on a Friday before Christmas. I didn't blink an eye, you know. And I remember him saying to me, Alinga, can't you do something nice? You know, so I can talk about you being a nice person. So it was an alien concept to me. But what they want, what we had done and automating a data process system simply so that you could do it very quickly, nanoseconds of measure and articulate it, is that we had made it all open source so anyone can use it because it wasn't for profit. Money is, you know, we had made all our monies in the in previous lives. And I called it social earnings ratio, the SE ratio, and then gave the speech. And it changed because they called it, the Vatican Press called it, the God metric, which anyone in marketing would know it's like a, it's like a, a gift from heaven that had arrived. Suddenly, I got back to London and everybody was interested. The God metric, in particular in the UK, they wanted us to use it in the government for something called the Social Value Act. In the UK, like most governments around the world at that time and now, you cannot do public sector procurement unless you do bring a social value. So it's no longer cheapest price. Because cheapest price, I could say I could build a railway instead of costing 2.8 billion because I just go through every city and just wipe out villages. And they were, no, you need to create social value as well. So they used it in that in every government around the world. In India, there's something called a 2% CSR law, which is 2% of your gross profits must be spent on social value and uh, Indonesia the same, Mauritius the same, and then five different EU countries adopted it and it took off from there. And in 2016, Maria, I thought I had done very well. I was super pleased with myself. My CEO at the time, who had come from Barclays Bank and you know was a big shot at Barclays, number three, she said, are you very pleased with yourself? And she was in retirement. I said, yes. She said, wow, you have completely failed your mission. Amazing that you're pleased when someone has failed so badly as you, because nobody's interested. They only do it to win contracts. They're not because you change the values of society. Companies use your metric just because they want to win contracts. And to change the world, she said, you need to become like a bank. You need to become transactional. You need to be able not just measure love, but to send it. You know, and indeed, Maria, the story of all my divorces was I felt I loved them and they never felt I loved them. All right. So I had failed to transact my love. You know, I had measured it in my heart, but they didn't receive it. I then in 2016, we decided since we already digitize sentiment and hope and happiness and love, etc. Let's go and transact it. So we came across blockchain and we went from being a ugly duckling of the social world, social liberal innovation world. Everybody hated us in that world because we were saying, I love you, $4.50. Oh my God, you actually monetize love, you moron. Do you not understand? You cannot. So we were very unpopular. But when we went to blockchain, we became like a beautiful swan. And people understood that we were actually doing something different. And so 
the projects that we now work on, you know, are all to do with banking, for example, not just money and diamonds and uh, land and so on, but also happiness and hope and kindness. Uh, rewarding, for example, you know, one of the big projects we have in the Middle East, in the UAE, is where they have a ministry of happiness and they have a ministry of tolerance. We don't have in America that, you know. In America, the only currency is the dollar, isn't it? And indeed, I would always joke that if you were Mexican, a woman, or black, with money, you were all okay. But if you didn't have money, you were not okay. And so money is the currency, is the values set of America. But the world post-COVID in particular is changing, where we have projects like in the UAE where they want to bank, they want to reward behavior that creates happiness and tolerance in their country. Or in the city of Neom in Saudi Arabia, which is $500 billion we spent on 1 million people to create a new society. There they want to create a society not built on who's got the biggest amount of money, because money is not a challenge in Saudi Arabia, nor in Dubai. It is actually one to create a different society. So these are the kind of projects which we're involved in, large scale. We want to nudge society using the very well techniques, adopted techniques now of data and sentiment measurement towards creating better ideologies. I still have many questions for you. Uh, let's wrap up this first episode and stay tuned, everybody. We're going to a second one with Alinga. Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. 